Don't you love hearing children pray? Isn't it, isn't it a great thing? And you really never know what you're going to get, you know, when they start praying. One child, when they were praying, their parents wrote this down and submitted it to one of these online, you know, blog sites or something. And their son said, dear God, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a really good time like I am. And then another child said, Dear God, could you please send Mike Johnson to another summer camp this year? My son, Aiden, he's five. He's been praying um, more frequently. We love that. And he loves to pray at dinner time. And almost without fail, his prayer is, Dear Jesus, we pray for this food. It's not Chick-fil-A, so please help it to be good. <laughs> Says it all the time, all the time. And, um, you know, we, we give kids a pass because, I mean, they're learning and they're growing, and it's really funny, so we give them a pass. Unfortunately, though, sometimes it doesn't really get much better with age, praying, sometimes. You know, sometimes um, we adults can uh, be just as elementary and just as juvenile and just as immature with our prayers. I'm sure you've had the uh, occasion of being in a prayer meeting at some point when the prayer time becomes kind of a platform for gossip, you know, where the person praying decides they're going to take it upon themselves to kind of air out the laundry of everybody around them that they know of stuff going on, you know, and so they they pray for them, but uh, it's really just uh, communicating what they know about everybody's life. You've probably been there. It's, It's sad. It's unfortunate. Sometimes we can be praying very similar to the uh, Pharisee in Jesus's story where the uh, Pharisee was saying, oh, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. I'm glad I'm not like all these other sinners. Listen, God, to all my righteousness that I want everybody else to hear. Sometimes we can do that too. Or sometimes we can make prayer our own little political platform where in our prayer, instead of praying for all of our leaders, we, we take it and we use it as bashing for all the people that we don't agree with and all the, the policies that we don't agree with. And so we can, we can take prayer and make it something that it's not intended to be and it's not intended to do. Uh, sometimes we, we have a lot of work to do in our own prayer life. No matter how far we've been walking with the Lord, we can always stand uh, to improve in areas of our spiritual life, and prayer would certainly be one of them. In Luke 11.1, 1, It's recorded that one of the disciples of Jesus said, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John did with his disciples. Teach us to pray. And Jesus' response was what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know it. That was his response. He gave them this model prayer, this kind of template, a pattern for them to follow. It wasn't intended that they would recite that every time, you know, just that's their go-to prayer. It was kind of a, a guideline for them in their prayer life to make sure that some of those components are in all of their prayers. And really what is truly the Lord's prayer is what we find in John chapter 17. Um, That's been called the great high priestly prayer because it's Jesus praying for his immediate disciples that were walking with them in that day. And it's him praying for us, for all believers that would ever come to him as a result of that first proclamation of the gospel that all of his apostles were going to go out and proclaim. And certainly that fits. But the way I look at this prayer, I come away with the title of the Savior's Prayer because 
in this great prayer, it, it really is the most significant prayer recorded in the Bible. It is so deep and so far-reaching. But what we see on display is our Savior's heart. We see a vivid picture of Jesus as Savior in this prayer. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks as we start this series. We're going to just dive deep into this amazing, magnificent prayer. And really, we could spend longer than that, but we're going to just take three weeks and, uh, and just try to, to spend some time actually thinking about what is said, because there is so much that we can learn from this prayer. The pattern that Jesus provided in the Lord's Prayer, he actually personally expresses in this prayer uh, in John 17, and, and it teaches us so much. We see his heart. We see the heart of Jesus on display. It teaches us about the proper relationship that we should have with the Father. It teaches us about servanthood. It teaches us about unity. It teaches us about God's sovereignty and his power. I mean, it's just full of so many things that we would all do well to listen. And so as we jump into this series and this amazing prayer of this this one chapter in John, may we each say what that disciple did in Luke 11, 1, Lord, teach us. May that be the cry of our heart as we go through this. Lord, teach us. And today, as we get started, we're going to look at the first five verses, John 17, 1 through 5. And what we're going to see is an overall theme of glory. That's the theme of these five verses, glory. We see it mentioned or focused on in some way with each statement that Jesus makes. And you know how when you go into maybe an art gallery or a museum, there's certain rooms that are themed, like the the museum might have a a room that's designated to a certain uh, geographical area or time period in history. Uh, If you go into an art gallery, there's a certain theme surrounding a, a specific painter, but then there's specimens and examples of specific individual things that you want to just go in and stay at and linger a little bit get as much as you can from that before you move on to the next display or the next exhibit, but it still all comes under this one theme. That's how this is going to work. As we go through John 17, 1 through 5, the overall theme is glory, but there's specific aspects of that that we want to focus in on. There's little nuggets that we don't want to overlook. So with that being said, let's turn to John 17 together. Verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to get us started. When Jesus had spoken these words, and the words that that's referring to is his whole discussion with the disciples that takes place from John 14 all the way through John 16. He washes his disciples' feet in the upper room. He does the Passover and really the first communion, and then they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested. And as they're going to the garden, as they're going to this unavoidable kind of final destination for Jesus. He's talking to them along the way as they're walking. He's giving them final instructions. He's trying to encourage them. And that's what John 14 through 16 is. And so then it ends. And that's where John 17 picks up. So when Jesus had spoken these words, all those words that are recorded in John 14 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, Abba, Daddy, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right in verse 1, there's just such a significant statement and, and such a significant plea from the heart of Jesus to the Father. Jesus is seeking the glory that is rightly his, which he laid aside in becoming man, which he laid aside in leaving heaven to come to earth, which he laid aside with the incarnation. It's what Philippians 2 uh, covers in great detail. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 tells us that though Jesus was completely in equality with God the Father, he was completely that same divine being, that same nature was his nature that was with the Father's. They were separate persons in the Godhead, but what was true of God the Father was true of God the Son. And so it says that Jesus, though being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God, which was his, equality with the Father, as something to be grasped onto, as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, Philippians 2 tells us, he emptied himself of his divine privileges and took on the form of a slave. So here's Jesus, the divine Son, the eternal Son of God, equal with His Father in being, laying aside all that was rightly His and His by nature for all of eternity past, adding to His divinity, humanity. And it wasn't just any humanity, it was the human experience of a slave. And it says, when He became human, He humbled Himself, becoming obedient and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So, what's going on here in this opening verse of this incredible prayer is Jesus is seeking the glory that is rightly His, which He laid aside to be restored. He's wanting glory restored, but He's not wanting it restored for for selfish reasons or selfish purposes. He's wanting His glory restored only so it can be given back to the Father. He says, I I want my glory restored to me, Father, just for the purpose of being able to glorify you to the fullest. That's, That's my desire. I want to glorify you in everything I am, everything I do, and I want the glory that was mine back to me in full force so I can give it in full force to you. Isn't that significant? It's very much counterintuitive for all of us to think of it that way, to think of glory that way. It's certainly countercultural. And the reason for that is because we are, all of us, glory-hungry and glory-thieves. That's what we are, naturally, humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, in in our flesh, in our selfishness, all of us, enjoy, and if we're really honest, want to be the center of attention. We love when our preferences are what happens. We love when our agenda is what gets pursued. We love it when things go our way. We love it when things work out according to our plan and our design, right? And, and we get pretty bent out of shape pretty easily when it doesn't happen that way. I mean, we're, we're glory hungry. We want glory, Humanly speaking, ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the whole 
rest of human history could be summed up with glory hungry. We want to be the king of our own castle. We want to be the emperor of our own empire. It's what we want deep down in the core of our being, humanly speaking, in all of our sinfulness, and all of our selfishness. And we're not just glory hungry, we're glory thieves. Because in a million different ways, every day of our lives, we rob, we try to, anyway, rob God of His rightful glory. We try to take the glory that is meant for Him and use it for ourselves to feed our hunger for glory. That's, that's humanity in a nutshell. And all of our sinful decisions and all of our sinful actions really can come back to this fact that we are glory hungry and glory thieves. And so much that is wrong in our lives and in our world and in our history can be wrapped up in that. It's a pursuit of glory for self, for us to be the one that's on display. And part of the reason that that is such a drive for us, part of the reason we are so glory hungry, part of the reason we find it to be so easy to be glory thieves is because we were made for glory. But here's the thing. We were made for God's glory, not our own. We were designed for glory, but we were designed to pursue the glory of our maker and our designer, not for our own glory. And when we get that backwards, which we do all the time, we have a lot of problems, don't we? When we get that backwards, when we pursue our own glory instead of pursuing God's glory, when we live for our glory instead of living for his, when we seek our glory instead of seeking God's glory, that gets it all backwards and then all sorts of problems come from that. And what we have to understand and believe and remember and just recall to our our minds every day because we are so prone to forget we are so prone to get this backwards we have to remember that we will always be the most satisfied in life when God is glorified through our life we will always be the most satisfied in life when God is glorified through our life and we will always experience the most peace when we are pursuing God's glory in everything we do. So our, our satisfaction in life, our peace in life, our joy and our fulfillment in life, the reason all of those evade us so much of the time, the reason we still feel so empty in our human experience is because we're not going about it the right way. Because we're not, we're not seeking to glorify God through our life. We're not seeking to pursue God's glory in everything we do. And so of course we're going to come up empty. Of course we're going to feel jaded. Of course we're not going to be as satisfied as we should be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the calling on every Christian's life. That right there, that's, that's God's will for you, believer. Well, let's, let's look back at John 17, because there's so much more to teach us just in these first few verses. John 17, in verse 2, Jesus says to his Father, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See, Jesus was sent 
on a rescue mission. Jesus was sent on a redemption mission. He wasn't sent just to go through life, see how it was down here on earth, see what it was like to really be human and and kind of just take inventory of the human experience. No, he was sent to rescue and redeem fallen, broken humanity. And John writes in chapter 1, verse 4 of the same gospel that we're in right now, that in Jesus existing in Jesus, in his nature, in his essence, was life. And that life, he says, was the light of men. In Jesus existed truly abundant and eternal life. And that life was the light for all men. So what that tells us is that the Father's purpose in sending Jesus was to reveal and give that life and light that he carried that was his to the people that he would receive from his Father. All those that apart from him, apart from Jesus coming and and apart from him revealing that life and light, would just continue to crawl around helpless and dying in the darkness of their sin. And that's also true of, of all of humanity. Apart from Christ, outside of him... We're all just crawling in the dark, the darkness of our sin. And we're all living in, in a death that we can't get out of or escape or avoid unless we turn to Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's why Jesus came. And no matter what the enemy would like people to believe, no matter how successful he is at continuing to deceive them, The truth remains that God will always be the only source of real life and light. And God the Son will always be the only access. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Father is the only source of life and light that we all need, and Jesus is the only access to it. John 17 again, verses 4 and 5. Look at this, what Jesus says in these these statements. After he says that I've come to give them eternal life to all you've, you've given me, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see the theme of glory in these verses? Just overarching everything that Jesus says? Here in these these statements that we just read, the ending statements of this opening passage of this prayer, Jesus shows us that he he knows that the Father is glorified by his Son submitting to his will and to his plan of redemption, to Christ fulfilling and carrying it out. That's how the Father is going to be glorified through Jesus. He knows that, and he's recognizing that. He's saying that. Father, I know that the way you are going to be the most glorified is by me submitting to your will. It's by me submitting to your plan of redemption that you sent me for. It's by me fulfilling and carrying out your plan, your work that you you had for me to do. That's how you're going to be glorified, Father. 
And so he's expressing that to his father, not just because he needs to. I mean, he knows that. He's expressing that so that his followers will hear that. Because remember, he's standing right there with his disciples. This is not him going off to pray. He does that later in just a little bit, actually. After this prayer, he goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he goes off on his own, and he prays in agony. But this is right with his disciples. This is right as they're still making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't know, maybe he just stops abruptly and he starts praying. Or maybe he says, guys, hey, let's hang on for a minute. I'm going to pray to my father and I want you to hear what I'm going to say. I don't know how he did it, but that's what's going on. They're all around him. They're listening. And so all that he's expressing to his father is really for them to hear, for them to listen to, for them to learn from. And as his currently living disciples... That's what this is for us as well. It's a time of learning. It's for us to listen to our amazing Savior, to listen to the the most beautiful, most significant, powerful prayer he ever uttered or anyone else ever uttered in history. And so for us, what we need to take away from the verse we just read, John 17, 4, is that we need to follow our Savior's example And remember that the Father will always be most glorified by our submitting to and carrying out His will. That's how the Father is going to be the most glorified in our lives as well. Just like He was the most glorified through the life of His Son, through Him yielding Himself to His Father, for Him surrendering and submitting to the Father's will, to the plan of redemption, to the gospel that He was sent to to be and sent to give and proclaim. The same is true for us. The Father will always be most glorified by our submitting to and carrying out His will. Even when it is difficult for us to do so. Especially when it is difficult to do so. The times when when God's will is the hardest to submit to and live out and carry out, that's when the Father will be absolutely the most glorified, especially when it's hard and we do it anyway. I mean, submitting to the Father's plan of redemption, we we can't say it was easy for Jesus. In the next chapter, we see that that's not true. As Jesus says to his disciples, indeed, my soul is crushed to the point of death. I am in agony to the point of death. I am already broken. And he falls on his face before the Father, and we, we know that he... He's so in agony and so in anguish as he's praying that the sweat became as drops of blood. And and the, the son is begging with his father in all of his humanity in that moment, Father, please, if it's possible, let this cup be lifted off of, of me. Let, let there be another way. But nevertheless, and then he resigns to submitting, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Yeah, Submitting to the Father's will is going to be hard a lot of the times. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be grueling. But that doesn't give us a pass. That doesn't give us an excuse. We follow in Christ's example who did the ultimate hard thing all for the glory of his Father. And we follow in his example as Christians, which means little Christ. And we say, I'm going to do hard things for you, Father. I'm willing to do hard things all for your glory. Because my Savior did that for me, and he left me with an example. And then in verse 5, the glory that 
Jesus is asking to have restored. He said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This glory that he's asking to have restored is the same glory that he had shared in eternity past with his Father long before creation. Can we just wrap our minds around that even a little bit just for a second? Not very well, but we can try. I mean, just however long eternity had been up to the point of creation, we may never know that, but there was complete companionship and fellowship and partnership and mutual love and respect and mutual glory existing with each member of the Trinity, each member of the Godhead. The Trinity is is not something that came about at Jesus' incarnation, at, at Jesus becoming man. That's not when the Trinity became the Trinity. It had always been that. There had always been three in one. And within that fellowship, there's God the Son sharing the glory with His Father and and vice versa. And it's just this beautiful picture of combined glory and, and each member of the Trinity glorifying the other. It's the same glory, this glory that He's asking to be restored. It's the same glory that would have enveloped Adam and Eve when He came down and walked with them in the cool of the day. Picture that. Think about that. God coming down to be with man. And we, we know from John's gospel that it had to be the person of the Son because it says no man has ever seen the Father. So here's God the Son coming down and walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, fellowshipping, all of His glory surrounding them, saturating them before their fall. What a picture, what a thought. It's the same glory that he's asking to be restored that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And again, years later, when he met with God on Mount Sinai and his face started glowing like he had radiation face. (laughs) His face was glowing so much that people couldn't look at him. He He had to put a cloth around his face because the glory of God was so covering Moses that people couldn't stand to even look at him. And that's from Moses being face-to-face with God on Mount Sinai because of his being in the presence of divine glory. It's the same glory that Jesus is asking to have restored to him. The same glory that was his by nature. It's the same glory that resided in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple. It's the same glory that John wrote about in this same book in chapter 1. Verse 14, saying, we have seen, that's literally gazed at, His glory. Speaking of Jesus, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And no doubt when he wrote those words, he looked back in his mind to the time on the Mount of Transfiguration when he and James and Peter woke up from their sleep and they saw Jesus shining with the glory that was His. They saw a glimpse of the divine glory of their Savior, their master that they had been following. It's that glory, all of that glory is the glory that Jesus willingly laid down in total humility and submission, all for the glory of the Father. And that's what truly godly glory always does. That's what it means for the Christian to be Christ-like. 
It's not pursuing glory for our own sake. It's taking any glory we get in this life. And, and let's just be honest about it. A lot of people get a lot of glory in this life. But if you're a follower of Christ, that glory is not yours to hold on to. It's, it's taking any glory that we get and giving it first to the Lord Jesus, just as he gave his glory first to the Father. And then it's seeking ways we can make others shine. It's asking, how can I elevate others ahead of myself, as Jesus himself did? That's what Jesus modeled in this prayer. That's certainly what Jesus modeled all throughout his life. That's always what the whole Trinity does. Father, Son, and Spirit just glorifying one another. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies both. Each member just giving glory to one another. And it's, it's how we are supposed to operate as the children of God, like mirrors, just constantly reflecting glory. First to God, then to other people, but so that not so that they can grab onto the glory that we're reflecting to them, so that they can then do the same thing. They can give glory to God and give glory to others. And and if this is happening, just think, just picture what a beautiful, together, honorable body the church would be if we're constantly doing that, if we're getting that right. If each of us individually are saying, nope. Glory, the glory that I might get is not for me. I'm going to give it to God, and then I'm going to use it to shine on you, my brother and sister in Christ, and they're doing the same thing. We're all just reciprocating glory. How beautiful the body of Christ would look. And it's achievable. It's possible. It's attainable. It's what we're called to, and God would not call us to do that. God would not tell us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven if it weren't possible. And he's given us the provision to do it in the Spirit of God. Think about this, Christian. You, at this moment, if you're in Christ, you have the God of all glory dwelling in you. Giving you everything you need for a life of godliness, a life that will glorify God. All at our disposal. It's just up to us to choose to yield, to surrender, to submit. So here's some important questions that I want to leave you with. With all this in mind, everything you've heard, everything we've just discussed together, here's some really important questions for us to regularly ask, ongoing, continually. Just two questions I have for you, but they're, they're profound. The first question is this. What are some ways, what are some of the ways that you personally can be a glory thief? I said it at the beginning, we're all glory hungry and we're all glory thieves, naturally speaking, humanly speaking. So what are, what are some of the ways you tend to be a glory thief? What are some of the potential things you can be a glory thief with? And that's probably going to take some time to think about. And, and that's what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to give that some serious thought. I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to your mind, to your heart. God, I know I might be asking for a lot here, and this is a dangerous thing to ask. This is a dangerous prayer, but I'm, I'm wanting to do it. I need to do this. Would you please reveal to me what you already know, which is all the ways I can be a glory thief? God, reveal that to me and change that in me. 
I challenge you to, to pray that, church, to get with God on that and to give this some serious thought and, and even journal this. Journal what he reveals to you. Journal what you're thinking. Journal what comes to mind and to heart. And use that as a, as a way to keep yourself in check. Here's the, the second question I want to leave you with. In what ways could you bring more glory to God through greater submission? I mean, that's, we just got done talking about the fact that Jesus is acknowledging here in this opening part of this prayer that he knows the way the Father will be the most glorified in his life is by him submitting his life to the Father's will. Even though it's hard, even though what that will is is extremely difficult. And we've said that that's what we're called to do as well. So that means we've got to ask that. What, what ways can I bring God greater glory through greater submission to his will in my life? And that's another thing you're going to have to really take some, some time with. This is, neither of these questions are, are really quick, easy questions or, or really quick, easy answers. This is, this is time to, to actually ponder but I encourage you to do it. And again, turn to God and say, God, will you please direct me in this way? Would you reveal to me and, and lead me in some specific ways that I could be bringing you more glory through greater submission to you in my life? Reveal that to me. And then would you please empower me? Would you please help me to do it? And every time, Christian, every time, if, you, if that is the prayer of your heart and you mean that, God will always respond. He will always answer that request positively. He's eager to do that. May that be our goal. May that be our desire. May that be our prayer. God, reveal to me the ways that I have been or can easily be a glory thief and keep me from being that. And reveal to me, God, instead of that, instead of me being a glory thief, reveal to me the ways I can bring you greater glory through a greater submission. May that be the cry of all of our hearts. And if we're doing that individually, each of us, think about, think about what that will mean for us together, corporately, as a body. Wow. Wow. Let's pray together. Father, what a prayer this is that your Son uttered to you. What an amazing privilege it is that the original disciples got to stand and listen and hear this magnificent prayer. Thank you that we, through your sovereignty of protecting your word through the ages, have given us the privilege of listening in on the same prayer. It's really as if we've been able to go back in time and we're standing right there with Peter and James and John and Philip and Thomas and all the others, and we're, we're there and we're listening to our Savior pray these incredible words, this incredible prayer that teaches so much. We're able to listen and learn as well, just like they did. What a gift. Thank you for the gift, obviously of your whole word, but thank you for the gift of this specific part of your word, that we're able to have this prayer from your son, our savior recorded. The theme of these verses truly his glory and it, and it teaches us what it means to truly pursue glory and, and what that should look like and what glory really involves it's not arrogance it's not pride it's 
humility and its submission and servanthood. May that mark our lives. May we say, as one body together, we want to see Jesus lifted high. May that be the cry of our heart. But for Him to be seen high and lifted up, exalted in our lives, it means we've got to humble ourselves and submit our lives to Your plan, to Your will, just as He did. Because that's when He's going to be exalted. And that's when you're going to be exalted. Jesus will be glorified when we make much of Him and less of ourselves. He must increase. We must decrease. That's how He's going to get glory. And then you will be glorified through our lives as we are submitting to Him and putting all the glory back on Him. May that mark our lives. May that mark Faith Baptist Church. Help us in that by Your Spirit's power, I pray. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.